2: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by The Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Joining me is someone resplendent in northernness, which she wears like a magic cloak, Thea Lenaduzzi. What
3: does that look like? It's what magic. Does that do- look
2: <laughs> It's hard to say, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know where the cloak ends and you begin. We are, this is a northern-based show today.
3: As a concept, yeah, it's interesting. It's it that?
2: is interesting. What are your northern credentials? Are they impeccable?
3: Do they are? I mean, they are, they are impeccable. They are yeah. both British and Italian.
2: North Italy as well. Yeah, North Italy and, uh, and North British. Well. Am I allowed to w be northern? Classic? No, I'm, you're not. I'm no, sorry. No, really, you've you're thought this. you thought about from the Midlands. You need to own that. You East need Midlands. That. <laughs> uh, I won a, a Twitter competition for beard of the year. Beard of the winter. <laughs> of yeah, weird. Segway that. But it was me against the man who presents East Midlands Today. Weirdly, I don't so too. No, I don't know who it is either. But the point is, <laughs> two East Midlanders. There you go. So that was owning it.
3: Owning the, owning the, the East Midlands and the beard. Yes.
2: Now, dog update.
3: Dog update. Well, uh, yeah. People
2: are tweeting about it. I want, you yeah.
3: <laughs> know. It's, <How laughs> it's c- madness. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to jinx it, but. You're close. The, I think we might be close.
2: Have you had your house approved?
3: Yes. Our house has been approved and our garden and us. Yes. <laughs> crucially. And um, it's ready to go. Yeah, I think so.
2: You don't want to jinx it? I don't want to jinx it. I can't say by, anymore. will we know by next week? I think so. Okay, we'll talk about it properly. Then. <laughs> and I can bring in my biscuit-based anecdotes as well, of course, <laughs> my dog. Um, well, we'll make sure you listen next week. Uh, <laughs> and also make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. Google TLS subscriptions now and get involved. So this week, everything points north with our geographical-themed special, including... Catherine Taylor shares her reminiscences of growing up in a Sheffield bookshop and her thoughts on the northern publishing industry more generally. We examine the fraught matter of the northern Irish border, such a key factor in the ongoing endless Brexit wrangle. Dermot Ferrita has written a timely book called The Border and will help us understand more. To Iceland, where former TLS intern and now poet Frida Iceberg will talk to us about an Icelandic prize-winning film and novel... And we have something very special too. Paul Muldoon has written a five-page, 600-line poem, which is published in full in the TLS. And we have it performed by the actress Lisa Dwan. You can hear the full thing as a separate podcast, but we'll share a little with you in this one too.
3: A list of the top British publishers in terms of sales makes it patently clear that London is the centre of the industry. For some years, though, there have been rumours that one of the southern giants might move at least part of its operation up north, as certain media companies, including the BBC, already have. The economic benefits of a northern shift are obvious. With overheads dramatically reduced, the potential for profits increases. Likewise, if margins are a little less tight, publishers might just start taking the odd creative risk again not to mention what we all stand to gain in terms of diversity in this infamously exclusive industry. So far, though, it's the independents who are keeping the scene alive in the north, some having moved out of London in recent years, others having been working away up there all along. The rest of the industry, it seems, remains too scared to take the plunge into this great unknown of its own creation. Catherine Taylor, who has written a piece in this week's TLS on bookish goings-on in Sheffield, joins us now to bring us a literary snapshot of her hometown. Hello, Catherine.
4: Hello. Um,
3: So your piece begins in quite a sinister key, (laughs) which might justify any, you know, southern trepidation about moving up north. So my piece
4: begins about... uh, something that actually sort of haunted my childhood and beyond, which is the um, the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, who was caught behind my school in Sheffield in January 1981. The the story of the Ripper has been enshrined in sort of various pieces of fiction and non-fiction, but um, most explicitly, I think, in David Peace's Red Riding Quartet, which kind of covers the years 1974 to '83. And uh, was uh, made into a very popular television series about ten years ago.
2: I've not seen, I've not read oh, it. It's have excellent. It, it the good.
4: Yeah, it's both. extremely violent. Mm. I mean, Andrew Garfield stars in the first episode. Yeah, yeah, I
2: remember it coming and, um, out.
4: Rebecca Hall as well, and I, I couldn't actually watch it beyond the first episode.
2: Why is that? Because growing up in that area, does it does it linger then as a, oh, as well, a that's, thing?
4: Yeah, I mean that's set in West Yorkshire and I think um, Ian Jack wrote a very good article about the series when it was just started appearing on television saying oh it's fantasy, you know, it's, it's very good fiction but it's nothing like the North well actually I'd slightly disagree with that um, and the strap line from the series was uh, we're in the North, we can do what we like which is how I start my, my piece for the TLS
2: And is that true do you think? I, I, I can say this because T is Northern
4: actually, I'm, I'm a Midlander yeah so i'm neither, so less,
2: less I'm neither one thing nor neither neither nan nor bill as they say in the midlands uh, so i can kind of look at it impartially i feel but do you think the north um it revels in that type of
4: I think it's been We're foisted tough. upon it, so oh, I think really? if, if, it's some, if something is, if an impression or a perception is foisted upon a region, then, then why not um, revel in it and why not make the most of it? you know there's plenty of Gothic in Yorkshire from the brontes from brontes downwards um,
3: yeah I, I, I would add so i 'm not actually from leeds i I'm, I'm married to a man from Leeds and I went to leeds university but i my, fam- my British family is from Liverpool and Manchester mm. with a bit of a Sheffield connection as well, and certainly when you think of Liverpool. You, you think of this place that does things its own way, to kind of paraphrase that line of yours, because it has had to. Exactly,
4: and I think well, there's also a risk of clumping all of the northern cities together, because each one is completely individual. Exactly. Some might say, rivalrous with each other.
2: But do you think it's interesting, I think it's interesting to live in a place where where you live matters, because when you talk about northern cities, Liverpool's a really good case in point, but I'm sure it's probably true of other northern cities mm. as well. The geographical location matters if you're from Liverpool or from Manchester or Sheffield. That is intrinsic to who you are. I I come from a place which doesn't matter. You don't say you're from Loughborough. If you're from Loughborough, it doesn't matter. There's no part of that seeps into your identity. Your identity is kind of completely distinct from the geographical location, where reading your beautiful piece, actually, I really felt that. The geographical location is intrinsic, partially at least, to who you are
4: that's absolutely true and uh, I think it's often the case as well because I've lived in London much longer than I've lived anywhere is that you spend your time sort of being very protective and quite defensive of a place that you grew up in particularly with the, you know as I just said the perception of the north you know the flat caps and the whippets and on Ilkleymore by tap etc etc and uh, and I think it's very important to sort of to say well actually no it's not you know these cities are Huge have been huge cultural centres as well as you know manufacturing centres, for example.
3: Well, let's let's talk about um, the contribution made by your mother to this mm. scene because that's that's very much at the heart of your piece. So your mother yeah. set up a bookshop. She did. She left teaching
4: in the um, mid seventies, well, nineteen seventy four, and she set up a bookshop in Broomhill, which is the university suburb in Sheffield. Sheffield's got two universities, and it was an independent bookshop. Uh, it had been a long-held dream of hers. And she basically invited authors that she really liked to um, to come for literary events and literary lunches, which I think was something that was really... Not it's certainly not done in Sheffield, and uh, I don't know how common it was, you know, sort of in, in the rest of the region. But um, it was, you know, it was fairly groundbreaking. And um, as I say, in my piece, we had uh, lots of different customers, including Phil Oakey from the Human League, and <laughs> I, I would try and hang around the till <laughs> um, to see his diagonal hair, and um, and Philip Hensher, who um, grew up in Sheffield as well, and uh, and very typically, Philip, he's quoted in a piece from another paper saying that he had a wonderful. Um, discussion about Proust in in the bookshop, possibly with my mother, who knows. Um, so it was a sort of cultural hub, and uh, and it was you know it lasted for nearly ten years, and um, you know factors like chain bookstore coming and opening opposite, and uh, the, the the disappearance of the netbook agreement, which has meant that booksellers didn't discount so everyone had a fair playing field and when that vanished then you get the two-for-ones you know mostly in chain bookstores etc which is why
2: authors make less money now as well isn't
4: of it of course and now and this was way before the internet and any kind of sort of e-commerce notion of selling books as well
3: um, well another of the things that comes through really strongly in, in your pieces is there's a resourcefulness um that kind of characterizes uh, well ca- sounds like it characterized the way your mom did business you know she couldn't find a the, a A suitably prime ministerial chair when (laughs) I came to visit she She quickly (laughs) grabbed your your dining set, one from your dining set. Um, But is it fair to say, do you think that that characterises talking more broadly now about Publishing in the north characterises the whole business there. Well,
4: I think that's the notion of any kind of startup, you know, whether it's in the north or not. I mean, mm. I have to confess, my mum was from New Zealand, so uh, she wasn't. She wasn't from Sheffield. Um, she grew up on a farm in New Zealand. But um, yeah, I think it's you know, under the stories, which is one of the publishing houses based in Sheffield, is has its office in Sheffield Central Library. So it's kind of making use of what resources are there mm. and uh, and going with it. And I don't know whether that sort of held. Help publishers back before um, we have this new renaissance allegedly uh, in in publishing with independence but also the new creation of the Northern Fiction Alliance which I've alluded to as well in my piece.
3: well that's I think in part uh, specifically what I'm getting at as well Mm. this Northern Fiction Alliance is this idea of pooling resources.
4: It's a coalition which has grown and it was started by Comma Press in 2016. Comma Press is based in Manchester which arguably is the place where a you know um, a larger publishing house might set up an office because it's bigger. It's had much more regeneration than um, perhaps other northern cities, and much more investment um, from foreign businesses. And it's become much you know cooler in a different way than it was in the And AC. The BBC's
2: there, and, and all that's that. That's
4: right. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, it's had extraordinary sort of cultural renaissance in terms of. The Whitworth Art Gallery having a big reopening and the, the library, you know, be this new centre. So it kind of probably makes more sense. Um, but let's not forget that uh, if publishers move north and if cities have more expansion, then they also shut out people who, who live in them, you know, in terms of living costs. And, and Manchester's already getting very expensive to live in, for example.
2: Do you think, that might, do you think it might happen? That, I mean, there's an argument, which will probably never happen, that it's a dangerous thing in this country that London has everything. London and the rest of the country are effectively two different countries. And a lot of countries which are fairer, Germany is the obvious example, it splits its various parts into different cities. So there are several big cities all contributing to various functions of the nation. Whereas in this country, we really have London to the exclusion of almost everything else. Do Do you kind of believe that if the center of gravity shifted, to Leeds, I mean, Channel 4 are going to Leeds, the BBC has gone reluctantly to, to, to Manchester. <laughs> and, and
4: screaming. And Radio
2: 5 Live presenters clearly don't like it because none of them work there for five days a week. They all do job shares so they can come back to London. But if they were, do you think that uh, that sort of sens- uh, sense of gravity shift, do you think that would make a difference in a positive way?
4: But it would, take it would, but it would take a long time. I mean, I think, and also the mistake would be to think that a city has to be like London to be successful. Yeah. You know, there's nowhere, as you say, like London and the South East, so we we'll include, include that bubble um so it's really about having a city um being successful culturally in whatever way on its own terms and you know retaining its its unique uniqueness
2: yeah I was going to talk about dialect but I want to do that at the end because I've got, i want to, I want to test how we all say different different <laughs> different words I tell you what I did uh, re- the Loney which is a book that came. Yeah. Uh, out of the Morecambe Bay area. That's right. And it won the cost of the book prize, didn't it? But it was bought by John Murray after it had already been published by a northern press. And so it it had a life in the north, but it took a London publisher buying it to make people pay attention. Is that kind of indicative of how things work, that the, the, the things can be quite small scale, but to get scale, you have to be bought by a by a big London
4: press. Yeah, and I, and I also think, again, that's not necessary. I mean, yes, it's true of northern publishers like Blue Moose, which had a huge success with um, Ben Myers, the Gallows Pole, which won the Walter Scott Stalker Prize, and he's now being published by Bloomsbury. I think it's true of small presses, generally. Yeah. You know, if you think about Eamon McBride being published originally by Galley Beggar in Norwich, I think small presses are used to that um, and I think it would be, a sh- you know, I think what perhaps small publishers need and regional publishers need is more, they need more backing from arts counselling than they more need more backing from their own regions, which are pretty cash-strapped in order to make sure that the other, their authors are not enticed by large publishers.
2: But you can't blame the authors. And actually, I... Of course to, you can't. And from the publisher's point of view, because this is my publisher actually, I know the guy who did it, and he's given the author of the Deloney... The opportunity to write another book and it and and it's given him a, a, a route out
4: absolutely and of course it, it will reflect very well on that original publisher let's not forget so under the stories published um deborah levy's comeback book if you like swimming home which then went on to be a shortlisted for the booker prize that didn't do under the stories any harm even though she eventually
3: went back to her original publisher exactly it's not it's not sort of this clear-cut no uh, antagonism between the small presses and then the large presses no not presses, at all not it's, at all. yeah i mean uh, i'm thinking of the london book fair uh, the northern fiction alliance kind of made an appeal to the bigger publishers to please you know put your money where your mouth is and, and make a move uh, up north yeah, which is quite the, an and interesting
4: yeah and the bookseller has reported that penguin random house is considering doing just that um, really uh, last week or the week before moving you know probably up to manchester so who knows but but move, i would say it wouldn't be they wouldn't be sending staff up there. I would think they're probably just going to have a literary scout up there mm. or something like that.
2: They wouldn't be moving everyone from...
4: No, can you imagine? No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> can, can you imagine the yowls of people who go out for lunch and don't want to, 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 to leave certain London haunts, I suspect?
4: Yeah, and there was also, there was also uh, something in that same piece that uh, mentioned that Arts Council England might even support a larger conglomerate to do that. I think that would be wrong because I think Arts Council England absolutely needs to support smaller... Mm smaller publishing and regional publishing and, and
3: put its money where its mouth is. You know? That seems like the right place to yeah. to end it, I think. No,
2: I want to ask a dialect uh, question. dialect question. I want oh to ask it, 'cause you've got you've got a little book of Sheffield dialect. Uh-huh. So Thea, you're representing Liverpool. Oh. I'm going to represent the Midlands. Well how would you desc- what word would you use to describe what in the south is called a bread roll?
3: Um it's a bread cake.
2: A bread cake? Thea. Um
3: it's butty. I mean, it depends on what's in it. Depends on what's in it. I immediately think butty. it's chips. <laughs> so yeah. that probably tells you something about me.
2: In Loughborough, it's a cob.
3: A cob, uh, yeah, I know. A cob.
2: Yeah, 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 you have a chip cob. Yeah. Not a chip butty. And it's cake, is it? Yeah, I, think...
4: I am. I, it can also be a bap as well. Yeah. Bat- bat- yeah, bap- yeah. 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 So what's bap the book, What's
2: the book you're looking at?
4: It's called Sheffield Dialect. It's locally published in Sheffield and it's by David Batty and it's. Sheffield Dalek and Folklore Since the Second World War, Dying Tradition. It's one of those sort of books that you see by the counter, but probably not anywhere other than no, in Sheffield. No, other than Sheffield. <laughs>
2: um, one more one. If you'll feel it, uh, someone is grumpy. Mm. What would you say they are? Um, M- Mardy, Mardy in Loughborough.
4: Well, it's interesting because, you know, when the Arctic Monkeys was yeah. very... I couldn't believe it. I was called Mardi bum at school in the Oh Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, hang on a minute, they're having a bit... Um, if someone's complaining, mythering,
3: mythering, yeah, mithering, that's good. Yeah.
2: See, I think that there's a bleed in. I know we don't, we're not admitting the Midlands as part of the North, here, but there is <laughs> definitely a bleed into that. Do oh, you, of
3: course there is.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think Sheffield is the southernmost big city in Yorkshire. It's well, South and,
3: Yorkshire, but it's also the North Midlands. And in fact, if I said to my husband, "Oh, um, let's go to Sheffield," or I'm, ta- yeah. I was talking to someone from Sheffield, he'd say, "Oh, a southerner." Yeah, down,
4: down.
3: Uh, down. down. Yeah. So Leeds, Manchester, Sheffield. <laughs> but it, you
2: down. know, it's a joke. Yeah. It's going down. And <laughs> a- Anyone being ca- called Maduk
3: or
4: flower is Sheffield. Love is kind of flower
3: is love very is common is in
2: Sheffield. Sheffield.
4: And that, and flower are common for you
3: know if you're talking to a man or a woman. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's just, just trips off yeah. the tongue. My As is love. Over. I love. I love seeing elderly men on, on, on a bus in Leeds or wherever just calling themselves calling each other love. I just think it's wonderful. It's strange, no, it's, isn't it? Because it's yeah. such a match. <laughs> a match. <Yeah>. Well, exactly. <laughs> it's odd,
2: isn't it? I like me duck. That's my grandpa. So walking hello, you walk in. Hello, hello, me duck. You don't get that. You don't get that down here, do no. you?
3: And petal. Another one. Petal. Oh, yeah, petal and treasure.
2: Okay. I don't mean, I don't want to patronise. Oh, I feel we're, right. yeah. Lovely. We're patronising <laughs> ourselves <laughs> We're patronising <laughs> ourselves uh, Catherine Taylor, thank you very much thank indeed. Thank you. We've discussed the history of the Irish question on this podcast with the great historian Roy Foster, who was, if you remember, fuming about the arrogant way in which the whole process of Brexit had neglected to consider the needs of Northern Ireland or the consequences of returning a firm border between it and the Republic of Ireland. He sadly quoted Hubert Butler, who hoped back in the 1950s that the border might simply float away like a sticking plaster from a wound that has healed. Instead, the scar may look angrier now than it has since the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Dermot Ferris has a new book out called The Border, The Legacy of a Century of Anglo-Irish Politics. It's out this week, and he joins Thea and me now. Welcome to you, Dermot.
5: Thank you very much. Lovely to be here.
2: Firstly, were you surprised that the issue of the border was so scantily considered in the lead up to the referendum and probably in the immediate aftermath of it as well, actually?
5: No, I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, one of the things that we have learned over many decades is that Britain looms much larger in the Irish consciousness than Ireland looms in the British consciousness. Um, And that's not unusual um, when it comes to the relationship between the uh, coloniser and the uh, colony of old. Uh, But it certainly was uh, obvious that the Irish question was not going to dominate the Brexit referendum. Uh, It wasn't a serious consideration during that referendum at all. And that was in keeping with, I think, a general underappreciation of what the border means in Ireland. And I don't think people had any... Uh, particularly strong focus during that referendum on what the consequences might be for Ireland and for the Irish border. So it really was the forgotten issue, I think, of that referendum.
2: And it's so striking that, you know, we're talking about this now and and just a few miles from where we're sitting in Westminster, they're, they're having yet another kind of parliamentary farce where the backstop agreement designed to try and deal with border concerns is the dominant factor. So there's a kind of poetic justice almost in it, perhaps that Well you
5: can also you can also see it, I suppose, as a dark irony in that, you know, the issue that was so obviously ignored during the referendum campaign is the one now that is causing Theresa May and the government the most difficulty. Um, And, you know, it's the main cause of of Theresa May's recent defeat in the House of Commons was precisely this issue that was um, so comprehensively uh, ignored. So, yes, you could see it like that, but that doesn't help uh, the Irish situation. And there's an interesting consistency, you could say, about the Irish government's approach to dealing with this neglect by insisting with its EU partners, that it has to be centre stage, but also insisting that it is not going to devise a solution um, with, you know, talk of a hard border. It's up to Westminster to come up with solutions because it's Westminster's problem. Um, and that is true to an extent, but only to an extent, because obviously it's very much an Irish problem as well. It's an economic problem as well. I mean, a, a sort of
2: hard Brexit, which creates a hard border, is Is pretty calamitous for the Republic of Ireland in the same way it's pretty calamitous for Britain, isn't it? I would have thought.
5: Well, there's no doubt about the difficult economic consequences, but it is important to emphasise it's not just a trade issue, it's not just a technical issue. This is a psychological question, it's a political question. A lot of the issues that we felt and hoped had been solved or sorted have been reopened. Um, very controversially, they've come very aggressively back into current affairs. And you can see a coarsening in the rhetoric. You can see the uh, strain that's there on Anglo-Irish relations. We've often said as historians uh, in the last couple of years that Anglo-Irish relations have never been better. Uh, And this has really uh, put us back very significantly. So it's not just about the money and the economics and the trades, though that's hugely important and complicated. It's also about those other Uh, historic difficulties that we felt we had overcome. So you do need to be very conscious of that. It's also, I suppose, about um, an annoyance in Ireland that there seems to be too much ignorance of the realities of the history of the border. And some very high-profile Brexiteers, obviously, people like Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees, Moggs, their comments are very widely reported in Ireland and very much resented because they're very dismissive of the idea Uh, that the border is in any way a complicated question. And this is about the the tail wagging the dog and uh, accusations Mm -hmm. like that. And that really does suggest that they know very little about Anglo-Irish relations and Anglo-Irish history. And this is one of the reasons why I decided to write this book. I don't think you can understand the importance of the border in Ireland and to Anglo-Irish relations unless you appreciate how it came into being and the kind of strains it has caused over many decades.
3: And going back to the days when the Good Friday Agreement was sort of being thrashed out, was the potential of the UK leaving the EU and its implications for that agreement for for um, well everything really was that was that not really was that not considered at all? Given, I mean, I would have thought it must have seemed only ever a matter of time before a Tory government got in and put that question an in-out and sort of thing to the people.
5: No, quite the opposite, actually. I mean, that was not on the radar at all, and I say quite the opposite because whilst the EU tended to take a hands-off approach to the troubles in Northern Ireland when they were at their height. Once the troubles came to an end and there was the prospect of a resolution and of agreement between London and Dublin and Belfast, the EU was very supportive uh, in relation to uh, funding and projects for reconciliation. And there was actually a belief that the European dimension would help. And some of the most sensitive negotiations between uh, Britain and Ireland in the run up to the Good Friday Agreement could happen on the margins of European meetings. So it was actually the shared European membership was actually quite helpful. And what transpired after the Good Friday Agreement is that there were an awful lot uh, of of, of different uh, economic elements and cooperation elements that came out of the Good Friday Agreement that were really underpinned by European goodwill, by European money and by the idea that, the European Union's emphasis on the lack of borders could actually hugely help the Irish situation and indeed could help Anglo-Irish relations.
2: One of the really striking points you made, which made me think a lot, is that one of the tension points for the preceding century was really the idea that Ireland could be seen as a theocracy. It could have been seen as as, as hugely Catholic, very repressive, and those fears of of what you know what would happen if there was a United Ireland. What would happen to to Protestants within that? And actually, what's happened in recent years is possibly thanks to the EU, Ireland has a it's much more progressive than Northern Ireland. It, it is much more progressive on issues like gay rights and, and abortion and things like that. So that change in relationship is really very striking in the last few years. What does that mean looking ahead? Because a lot of the threats of, of Ireland in terms of that theocratic repressive approach have, have disappeared entirely, haven't they?
5: Well, this was one of the great rallying cries of unionism and Ulster unionism in, in decades past, that home rule would mean Rome rule, that their rights as a minority Protestant group in and all, Ireland would never be respected because it was such a, a Catholic-dominated country. That doesn't apply anymore. Ireland has become, the Republic has become increasingly secularised. That's very obvious in relation to issues like abortion and divorce. And we were the first country in the world to approve gay marriage uh, rights or marriage equality through a referendum. So that, that old argument doesn't hold water anymore. But what is a continuing complication is the extent to which unionism has a role to play at the heart of British politics. Now, this is as much accidental as anything else, but it's very relevant also to the situation 100 years ago. There was a tendency 100 years ago for Tories to use the Ulster question and to use the support of Ulster Unionists to try uh, and make gains within English politics. And you could argue that the same is being done today. Uh, You know, that has remained... Uh, a constant complication. I mean, the DUP is obviously in a very influential position now because of the parliamentary uh, arithmetic, but you can't have feeling as well that uh, people within the European Research Group, for example, are, are quite happy to make common cause with the DUP, not because of any passion for Northern Ireland or any particular interest in Northern Ireland, but because it helps them to complicate um, the, uh, the the difficulties of Theresa May and, and to try and gain the upper hand within the Tory party. So there are certain um, there there is a sense of history repeating itself in relation to that. But in relation to some of the fears that unionists would have expressed about being. You know, dominated by a, a Catholic republic, uh, they really uh, do not hold water at this stage. It's
3: the other way; it's the other way round
5: now. Oh, must must be. Yeah. But meanwhile,
2: Northern Ireland is effectively not being governed at all, is it? I mean, that's the other thing that the, the, the you know what, what's happened at Stormont in the last few years. It yeah. seems it seems the stress has all shifted toward you know Dublin. Although it went in, Ireland went into the recession, but got out of it. The strain and stress seems to have all been pushed to the Northern side.
5: There's no doubt that Northern Ireland has a very dysfunctional politics and they have not been able to share power now, uh, Sinn Féin and the DUP, for over two years. And this key question has emerged, who speaks for Northern Ireland? Mm. Because you have to remember that the voters in Northern Ireland voted to remain Um, almost 57% of them voted to remain. The DUP are not speaking for Northern Ireland. And there's actually been an unusual cross-community consensus in Northern Ireland that the withdrawal agreement as it was proposed was a good deal for Northern Ireland because it gave them the best of both worlds. It gave them easy access to the EU market and to the British market, and uh, it wouldn't lead to the creation of a hard border. And yet the DUP was resolutely opposed to it. So this question of who speaks for Northern Ireland is crucial. But another complicating factor, which is not discussed enough at all in England, is that under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, those in Northern Ireland have the right to be Irish citizens or British citizens or both. What happens to those questions of citizenship in the context of Brexit? Uh, And in in relation to the creation of a hard border, if a hard border is to return and is to to re-emerge, what happens to their status? Those, for example, in Northern Ireland who identify as Irish citizens, will they still have the rights of EU citizens? Um, So there are an awful lot of of, of complications there uh, in relation to defining the status of the people of Northern Ireland. And they don't really have anyone to speak for them at the moment. And that is one of the reasons why... Irish governments in the last few years have been talking about um, being very aware and very vocal about the rights of nationalists uh, in Northern Ireland, that they won't be left behind, as the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar put it, which is also a public acknowledgement that in the past, Northern nationalists were left behind uh, by Southern uh, governments, by governments of the Republic. So there are those uh, complications, but some of the key concerns um, about the border Um, have exactly to do with that. What is the right to self-determination for the island of Ireland and for uh, the citizens of uh, Northern Ireland to identify in particular ways? Uh, This is all up in the air as a result of Brexit and we're not seeing any real coherent response to their worries and their queries. And what about the, the obvious
2: thing to consider, which is, you know, not least if you had a Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister of Britain who is very sympathetic to the idea of a united Ireland If some of the the, the theological disputes have disappeared, if if the Republic is already a more progressive neighbour, if there is an issue that the EU brings more benefit than it takes away, if the arrogance of the colonial power has been rendered more visible than ever over the last two years, is the prognosis of a possibility ever of a united island more likely now than it's been in some time, or is it still not really at
5: all on the table? Oh, well, I said the day after the Brexit vote that the Brexit vote made a united Ireland more likely uh, for a whole host uh, of of different reasons. And I've seen and heard nothing uh, in the time since the Brexit uh, referendum to change my mind on that. And again, you've got to go back to why the border was created in the first place. The border was created as a short term solution to the intractable problem of of Ulster Unionist opposition to coming into a nationalist Ireland. David Lloyd George, who was British Prime Minister at the time of partition in 1920, boasted that he had solved the Irish question. He hadn't solved the Irish question. No British Prime Minister has solved the Irish question, though some have come much closer uh, than others. And what he had done was put these issues on hold. There was the idea and people don't appreciate this, Britain didn't want to remain in Northern Ireland. The idea was that Ireland would work out its own salvation in time. And that's a direct quote from the legislation that gave effect to partition in 1920. But what happened instead was that the border was hardened as a result of violence, as a result of uh, the economics of uh, previous decades, um, and of course, as a result of the extent and longevity of the troubles. But Britain still did not want to become embroiled in what one British Prime Minister famously referred to as the Irish bog. Northern Ireland has always been an expensive nuisance uh, for Westminster uh, and for those who are looking on the Irish question from London. uh, And they would much rather if Ireland worked out its own salvation. And one of the complications arising out of Brexit uh, is that there's a question now over whether the British government can retain its rigorous impartiality in relation to Northern Ireland, as is required under the Belfast Agreement. And whatever about the Tory perspective, there's nothing to suggest that Jeremy Corbyn has any particular answers to this Irish problem. Uh, The way it's been described historically about the Labour Party in Ireland is that they have no past in relation to Ireland uh, to live down to or to live up to, um, that they have not been particularly uh, creative or dynamic when it comes to solutions for the Northern Ireland issue either and there's a sense that Jeremy Corbyn is much more focused on, on winning a British general election than he is on coming up with solutions to the Irish problem so um, I'm not sure a change of government would dramatically or profoundly change but perspectives the, on the Irish question.
2: But the question remains an open one. Um, Dermot Ferris, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us today.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
6: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
2: Let's head even further north to the always beguiling world of Icelandic culture. Last year, two of the five Nordic Council Prizes went to people from that island, which, as we are all continually told during football tournaments, has the same population as Leicester. There's another statistic I'm fond of too, which I hope is true, that in their lifetime, one in ten Icelanders will have a book published. At the TLS, we have our very own literary Icelander, Frida Iceberg, who can give us a cultural update. Frida, hello. Hi. Uh, right, so we're talking about two prize winners here, the novel Hotel Silence and the film Woman at War. And they both kind of oddly relate to the issue of war, which is odd because Iceland is a very peaceful country. It doesn't have an army. It's not very interested in war generally, but there's two things now about war.
7: Yeah, it doesn't produce uh, weapons. It's pretty peaceful, like you said. I mean, we don't have much violence i mean we had one murder last year which was accidental here in iceland so our news is filled with brexit and trump and wars and shootings and Uh, and violence
2: sorry
7: sorry Uh, sorry. i'd
2: like to apologize on behalf of britain for that
7: (laughs) yeah but we are completely alienated from it so like as a nation i think we are basically passive bystanders just somewhere in the north atlantic Iceland is a very small nation as well, and when you live in a small community, um, each individual is closer to power and has more in things. So he, like you said, one in every Icelander publishes a book because he or she can publish a book. And uh, you can walk into the biggest bookstore chain here with your indie project and have them sell it and get interviews in the biggest newspapers. So I think it
2: sounds fantastic. It does sound fantastic. (laughs) Is is it as nice as all that living there, Frida? Because it does sound sort of idyllic.
7: Well, we have to pay with it with darkness. Yeah, I was going to say. That's probably true. So we have the darkness of our own here. But the typical Icelander has mild megalomania, and I'm speaking (laughs) for myself as well. You can really see both of these traits in those works. You know, they address us with, uh, the urgency that, like, as individuals, we can um, be active or, you know, we can do something.
3: Tell us about the individual at the heart of Hotel Silence. He's, he's, he's a middle-aged man who fixes things. So, he's a, yeah, he's a handyman
7: and uh, recently divorced. And his ex-wife has just told him that his only daughter is not his flesh and blood. And uh, he's very depressed and decides to end his own life. But to spare his daughter the trauma of finding his body, he books a plane t- ticket to an unnamed country that is completely wrecked by war.
2: Is it, a Syria? is it Syria, do you think? Is it that sort of place?
7: Yes, I think, yeah, definitely. But when he arrives, his uh, suicide is then again suspended because death, doesn't really seem as urgent in the land of the dead, and he's simply needed there. He has a purpose,
2: and he fixes things. So it's uh, mr to um,
7: fix. He's called.
2: Yeah, so he gets. So he's in this hotel. He can repair things, and that gives him a sense of purpose.
3: Exactly. So it's, is as is much a study of, of kind of depression and or frustration, particularly male, as anything else?
7: Yes, I think so. Definitely. He has a neighbour in Iceland, who is also obviously very depressed, and uh, he. Yeah, I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's <laughs> obvious that it's... Uh, she's the author, us, She's definitely targeting toxic masculinity and the silence of it.
2: Is that an issue in, in Iceland? Because um, mental health issues dominate in this country now perhaps more than they ever have done, and largely that's a healthy thing because people are talking about problems that they would previously not talk about. Is that a factor in Icelandic um, life as well?
7: Yes, of course. Like I said... Um, your news is our news so it's <laughs> it's yeah yeah uh,
2: let's talk about uh, woman at war cuz uh, the uh, the central character of woman at war which is the film is a 49-year-old lovable choir master called Halla and the film begins with her armed with bow and arrow being chased by a helicopter yes why why, why why is that why is that freedom
7: well Hatla is almost the negative of Jonas or the opposite she's uh She declares war against the aluminium factory Rio Tinto, which is uh, an actual corporation. And Rio Tinto has some bad plans for the highlands of Iceland, and so she goes repeatedly to the highlands to damage the electricity pylons that connect to the factory, to sabotage sabotage, uh, Rio Tinto's activity. So she's just basically in eco-activism, or.
2: And is she fun? Is is it? I mean, is this a comedy? Is this a? Is this something with a with a conscience? I mean, it sounds quite jolly to me because she's sort of up to adventures and she's got a sister, an annoying sister who's a yoga teacher.
7: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, like it has some quirkiness. It's great music and humor, and it's just really pleasant to watch. You know, it's very satisfactory. The like, the yoga teacher, since you mentioned her, she's the you know, she's the perfect uh, contrast to Hatla, because they, they're they both a- uh, played by the same actress. And the, but the, the twin sister, she is, you know, the stereotype, she's a spokesperson for the typical PC uh, person who is inactive, who just, you know, thinks it's enough to recycle uh, her garbage. But Hatla, she wants to go further into the process. She wants to, you know, uh, stop the garbage becoming garbage.
3: I think um, yoga, yoga teachers get a very hard deal in, in pop culture these days and books and yeah. discussions. I think <laughs> yeah. possibly
7: correctly
2: so. <laughs> Do you know what I think? I think it's, there's a kind of smugness that's often attacked in, <laughs> in culture, isn't it? Because they, 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 they're so pliable as well and they're so healthy. They're kind of. So a,
3: damn pliable. Yeah, they're, they're a living <laughs>
2: reproof to us all. Uh, talking kind of in this area, Frida, uh, Frida I didn't realise till reading the piece that the audience is introduced to the most Icelandic cultural symbol of them all, and we could all guess what that is, but it's the swimming pool.
8: Yes, Why? it
2: is the swimming pool. So explain <laughs> that. So that's, that's central to Icelandic life, is it, the swimming pool?
7: Yeah, I think we have the highest number of swimming pools per capita in the world. Really? I think it's like for every 2,000 citizens or something. it's
6: so aggressive.
7: Um, oh. But it's, it, it's, it's, it has to do with the fact that um, around 1900, every fifth man died at sea. And Icelanders couldn't swim. And you could like the wives often just watched at the shore where uh, their husbands were just drowning in front of them. Oh, God. So, to do anything. so, yeah, so it was very early in the century that it became obligatory to learn how to swim. So, like a, a small village can have a swimming pool, but not a pharmacy, or, you know, <laughs> it's just very, yeah. yeah. So, it, it is a social center and I go every day, but I just go for the hot pots, you know, to relax. Oh, yeah. So,
2: because you're about sure to go swimming now, are you actually going to go and exercise or are you going to go and sit in a jacuzzi?
7: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to sit in, in a jacuzzi, but it's going oh, to be right snowing, answer. you know. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it has this kind of nice... It's, it's uh, our meditation instead of... So,
2: so are you going to be sitting outside in the snow in a hot tub? Yeah. That sounds so good, doesn't it? <laughs> And yeah, is...
3: just Google it. It's it's uh, it's a very funny culture. Yeah. We've gone disastrously off topic from the film here. Well, no, I, I, well, I, well I have we, Frida? Really, because although, yeah, the, the, one of the most important scenes in the film occurs in precisely this kind of setting, doesn't it? It's sort of like an intensifier, yeah. and these two women come together True. from their completely opposite perspectives.
2: True. And also, presumably, these films are the, so the film and the book are they're deliberately suggestive of Icelandic culture. One of the characters in these works is Iceland itself. Is that true?
7: Yeah, in in the film, it's, uh, yeah, the film has a lot of Iceland in it. It's a, you know, almost just like an advertisement for Iceland, well, but in a nice way.
2: Yeah, well, I, I want to see it, Frida. Um, we, we'll let you go for your swim stroke, sit around in a hot tub. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Bye. Well, that sounds just wonderful.
2: I actually think the hotel silence setup—it's really, yeah. cle- it's re- not that a really clever setup it to does, do? It does,
3: and I wonder whether translation rights have already been secured. Who's who's going to do so something about that? I'm trying to think. What, what
2: does it sound like? It sounds almost a bit sort of absurdist, not quite surreal, but that sort of it
3: could be completely depends on the writing. Yeah, because it? kind
2: of it's, it's obviously because it's obviously that it's almost a moral tale, mm. isn't it, rather than a realistic tale? Mm. You go to an unnamed village and you fix things in a hotel, exactly. and that sort of fixes your soul. Yeah, you can really see that. That, that being translated
3: yeah
2: um, I've never been to Iceland have you no I haven't We've, I desperately want yeah.
3: to but just when the, when the lightness is I want to go when it's cold I want to
2: <laughs> really? sit in a hot tub with the snow falling on me
3: I could I'd probably still do that I don't know I th- think I'd still wait till spring. the sun is out till the spring. spring exactly I don't you know I think All right, I you, want to survive you
2: party pooper yeah <laughs>
3: Paul Muldoon needs no introduction here. Certainly TLS readers will be used to seeing his name in our pages for poems full of verbal play and forthright reflections on society and politics then and now. This week, the TLS is publishing a new long poem by Muldoon, American Standard, which the actor Lisa Dwan, best known for her interpretations of Samuel Beckett's work, has read for us. You'll find the full recording of that in your podcast feed, but for now, here is a taster.
8: We'd landed up outside Luby's on the way to junior prom. There was myself, Ezra, and Tom. I was wearing my party dress. Ezra said he was a great believer in less being more. His blue pencil was always at the ready. The pair of them were slightly unsteady on their legs. They must have been drinking cherry bombs and now imagined we were in a rom-com when, in fact, we were in Rambo 3. The next thing I knew, Tom claimed to be quoting John Donne, only if I let him put a finger in me. Would he know I was the one? The limo driver glanced back from his cage while Tom and Ezra the scribe eyed me like a blank page on which they might yet make their marks. Strange name for a limo company. Shark. Before I knew it, they were on top of me. I was pinned under while Perquinos, the Indo-European god of thunder, is at the root of Quercus. Quercus, Virginia seems to reflect the age of Elizabethan plunderers. In the midst of the sage stood a Quercus, Virginia, a single live oak tree. I was in shock. I'd been hit by a stun gun. Only if I let him put a finger in me would he know I was the one. I remember as we passed the mudslinger's drive through the uproarious laughter between the two and their having fun at my expense. I somehow managed to escape. A picket fence gave way to the road on which the man I took for a vagrant turned out to be fragrant with aloes and mirror. Even now, no one believes what I say is true. They claim we stopped at Luby's for chocolate yahoos. The pair of them are still laughing uproariously, just frat boy stuff just having a little fun. Only if I let him put a finger in me would he know I was the one.
2: That was Lisa Dwan reading an extract from Paul Muldoon's American standard and you can hear the full performance of that on this very podcast feed that's all we have time for this week listen out for that podcast where you can our thanks go to Lisa Duan to Paul Muldoon to Frida Iceberg to Dermot Ferreter and Catherine Taylor make sure you buy the paper or subscribe wherever you are in the world Icelandic hot tub or not next week we have a politics special hooray he says sadly it's sure to be provocative Thea I've written here that you might come out as an arch-Brexiteer. Seems
3: very unlikely. It
2: seems unlikely, but, you know, we never never know. (laughs) A week is a
3: long time in politics. It is in flux
2: at the moment. Uh, You'll have to find out. Uh, Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.